brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, dear listeners, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and today we're going to dive deeper into this weird reality and see if we can't make some sense out of it. Because we know our current cog-in-the-wheel lifestyle is not what we were designed for, but from the ground up, we're taught to see the world in a very limiting way, conditioned to worry, injected with stress, and sent off to make that green paper before we keel over into an early grave. The scientists say spirituality is silly, the medical system treats the body as a car mechanic treats an old Volvo, and we lack the proper guidance to see reality as it really is. Meanwhile, if you get off of Main Street, you'll find many people who have unlocked mental abilities, self-healing techniques, and adopted a much more fulfilling way to live that just shouldn't be possible in the model we're given. Well, folks, today's guest is just such a person. His name is Dr. Jacob Lieberman, an optometrist and vision therapist who is a true pioneer in the fields of light, sight, and consciousness. Originally trained with conventional methods, his life changed in 1976 after a miraculous healing of his own eyesight, which sent him on a path of discovery and led him to uncover a deeper understanding of light and the science of life itself. Over the course of four decades, treating others and cultivating this alternative knowledge, he's authored several books on the subject with titles like Light, Medicine of the Future, Take Off Your Glasses and See, and most recently, Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living. He's also an award-winning inventor in the field of phototherapy, having created useful tools like VizFlex, the Color Receptivity Trainer, and the iPort Vision Training System, the first FDA-cleared medical device that significantly improves overall visual performance. I know I'm psyched to get into it. A man who's been honing his craft longer than I've been alive, the vision doctor, the eye guy, and the sensei of true sight. Dr. Lieberman, my man, welcome to the higher side. Oh, it's great to be with you. I love that introduction. You're you're definitely a poet at heart. I love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Too kind. And I really appreciate you being here. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. You've got a really impressive resume, and that's what people need to hear to sit up and take notice because we're working against a very strong current of conditioning, as you know. Yes. I really loved your book, Luminous Life, and after reading it, it's obvious that we need to rethink our views on light to understand the larger reality model that you write about in it. And to kick this off, 
let's use a quote. You say, light is more than just waves and particles. It's a purveyor of consciousness. Light is not just out there, something we need to find in order to see. Light seeks us out and guides us the way it seeks out and directs a plant to grow towards it. Well, man, when I read that, I knew I was going to be going on a ride. Maybe you can speak to some of the misconceptions about light and how you think about it so that people can get on the same page. So let me begin. You said how you think about it. The first thing that I'd like to say is what we think has no relationship with truth. Mm. Fair point. Everything we think is conceptual. It's theoretical. It's an idea. It's a point of view. But if you put that word belief, for instance, into a thesaurus, you'll see it means the same as thought, idea, theory, concept, and so on. But when you look at the antonyms of the word belief, one of the words that pops up and really, really just hits you right in the face is truth. That truth is actually the opposite of belief. And so it's not so much about thinking things differently. It's about actually identifying what that aspect is of our humanity that sees from no point of view and can actually have an experience of life that is direct, not through the filter of what I believe, what I don't believe, what's proven, what's not proven, but has a direct experience. You know, people spend so much of their lives trying to convince each other of what they think is true or is not true. But when you've had a revelation, you know, when you've had an awakening experience, such as like what I had in 1976, there's nothing to defend about that because you absolutely know that. There is a knowing. It's not, I think. There's just an absolute knowing about it. It's a fact in your life. And so that for me is what moves me and what has moved me for a long time. So having laid that foundation, now let's get into your question about what am I talking about? Light looking for us. Sure. Let's look at a plant. Everyone knows that a plant can't live without light and that a plant grows toward the light. And if you evaluate every single function within a plant, you'll see that every single function of the plant is light dependent. When the light literally comes up in the morning, a plant orients itself to be in the optimal position to receive the exact amount of phototherapeutic nutrition that it requires to essentially run all of its functions. And of course, everyone knows that plants have a unique relationship with light. What I'm attempting to share in the book, which is scientific fact, is that human beings respond to light and so do animals in the same way as plants do. Every cell of our body 
has photosensors. Another word for that are eyes. Every cell of the body has eyes that are designed to detect and respond to light. So now let's talk about what light is because everyone thinks, oh, I know what light is. Hmm. I wake up in the morning, I look out my window, there's light. Actually not. What we think is light is a perceptual experience we have that's actually called brightness or that we call color. Light itself is formless. It is totally invisible. You cannot magnify enough of whatever light is to actually see it. You cannot really describe it very accurately. However, when you attempt to describe the behavior of light, you find something really, really fascinating. It acts as if it is everywhere at the same time. It acts as if it is aware of everything that's going on everywhere else at the same time. In other words, it acts in the same way as the biblical description of what we call God when we say, oh, this creative force in the universe that religious people call God, the Bible says is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at the same time. And then the Bible goes on to say, God is light. I don't know why they say that, <laughs> but when you look at light, and you speak to a physicist that has studied light, they will all tell you that what we call light is actually the foundational energy from where everything arises. And this is why the renowned theoretical quantum physicist David Bohm, while he was alive, made a profound statement. He said, all matter is frozen light. In other words, everything that is solid is actually created from an energy called light, and that includes our bodies. And so what we know about the human body is that it is continually receiving information, if you will, in the form of light that tells it what to do, when to do it, and to what degree. Let me give you an example. Everyone knows that when the light rises in the morning, when the sun comes up, everyone wakes up. Creatures, animals, human beings, plants, everyone awakens. And as the light begins to recede at the end of the day, people start feeling sleepy and fall asleep. What the average person doesn't realize is that your blood pressure, your insulin production and secretion, the production and secretion of all of your hormones, all of the energy that your body has comes from light. Throughout the day, as the sunlight is changing, our body is continually adjusting itself to remain in harmony with Mother Nature. 
so that we are always at one with Mother Nature. When you're out of harmony, an example of that would be jet lag. You live in San Diego, you want to fly to New York or to London, you get on a plane, you're there in New York five hours later, and then you start feeling out of sorts. Sometimes you might even feel like you're coming down with something. Hmm. You begin to wake up in the middle of the night when you would be sleeping. You start getting sleepy mid-afternoon when you normally would be awake. You find yourself wanting to eat at times you normally wouldn't or needing to use the restroom at times you never would. The reason that occurs, not only to humans and animals, but also to plants, if you put a plant on a plane, the same thing would happen, is that every physiological function is light dependent. And so even though we have this idea we all share that we are controlling our life through our thoughts and our ideas and what we want to do and what we don't want to do, if you really look deeply into the functioning of the body with the most sophisticated technology science has to offer, you consistently will notice that the body is moving in the direction that you become aware of later and think was your own directive. So people spend all day, well, I make this choice, I make that choice. If you look at the brain with the most sophisticated MRIs that are currently available, you see that seven to 10 seconds before a person believes that they've made a decision, the body has already decided in its intelligence and is moving in that direction. So light is something incredibly profound. It is that which is continually evolving us toward a state of oneness with all that is in Mother Nature. And when we are in that state of oneness, that's usually when we experience optimal health and wellness. And probably one of the main reasons, you know, if you look at what we call disease, Sciences will tell you that 90 to 92% of what we call disease is directly caused by or significantly attributable to what we call stress. Mm -hmm. Seven or 8% is what we call chronic illness. Chronic illness is usually the result of living in a way that is normal but not natural. So when we look, at the fact that a huge amount of what we call disease is caused or very significantly related to stress, we have to take a look at what, what is stress. Most of us think we know stress is, but when I look at what we call stress, to me stress is when a human being, let's say we're talking about a person, has an allergic reaction to some aspect of their life whether it be a reaction to food or to the environment or a reaction to another human being, to a former husband or wife, to someone that for whatever reason gets under our skin. And when I say an allergic reaction, we have physiological and psycho-emotional reactivity to this. 
And so for me, stress is when we have such an allergic reaction. And so the way that I look at health and wellness is very simple. What is the person continually reacting to that is catalyzing dis-ease, a lack of ease, which is what we call the beginnings of disease, stress, and so on? And what can we do to help them come to a place where they are able to embrace or at least have a neutral response to that which they used to recoil from. So for instance, if we all became comfortable with what used to feel uncomfortable, our whole life would be different. And so all of my work over the last 45 years has been related to that. And because we and the functioning of our bodies are inseparable from the light spectrum, what I do with people is I take them through a very simple visualization because most of my clients I never see, I work with via Skype and so on. And I do a color analysis, which is essentially, I see how they respond to what they perceive as the different colors of the spectrum. And what I routinely find is that people seem to be very comfortable when they think or envision or look at certain colors, and they're not as comfortable when they look at others. What's interesting is that on a cellular level, when a cell is in optimal state of health, it responds to all colors, in other words, all of the different segments of the light spectrum in the same way. But when a cell is out of balance, it responds selectively. It basically says, I like this one, but I don't like this one. Well, I noticed the same phenomenon almost 40 plus years ago. And so what I do is I, I've developed a way of using color to very gently help someone to desensitize themselves from perhaps unresolved emotional triggers that we don't know where they originate from. Some may come from early childhood experiences, but I think most of them are in the matrix of our DNA and have been passed on generationally for millions of generations. And so I utilize color, which slips beneath conscious awareness as a way of allowing them to notice, wow, isn't that interesting? I'm so comfortable with green and blue, but I'm so uncomfortable with red and orange. What's fascinating then is that I notice a very significant relationship between the colors someone is uncomfortable with and the areas of their body where they develop problems or where they hold stress or where they have some sort of physiological malfunction. People over the years have heard of the chakra system, which is the fact that the body has different energy centers. This is an old idea that people came to thousands of years ago. When I was first introduced to this, 
I didn't know what to make of it because I couldn't find any science to back it up. But I noticed that the chakras all had different colors attributed to it. I didn't understand why. But when I began doing this color analysis many, many years ago, I discovered that the colors that people were seemingly uncomfortable with related to the areas of the body, the chakras of the body associated with those colors. And so I've developed a very simple approach that helps a person to understand something about their makeup, not in terms of disease or fixing, but in terms of what parts of life are they open and receptive to and what parts of life create tension for them. And then the whole process is to expand their receptivity to all of the energies that make up the experience we call life so that we are less reactive and more at ease with our environment, with our experiences, with other people, and so on. Mm. <laughs> That's a long answer to your short question, but I think it deserves sort of a global view so your listeners will have some sense of what I'm speaking about as a whole rather than just piecemeal. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it is just so fascinating. You touched on a lot of things that are probably pretty paradigm busting for people, especially this understanding that disease, for the most part, isn't just random selection. It's not Russian roulette with the universe. It's actually based on our behaviors and us not getting what we might need from the natural environment. And you framed up light in a really interesting way. I mean, it's probably way different from the way people are used to hearing about it. And let me ask you a little more about the sun. Conventionally, of course, we're told the sun is going to give us cancer if we don't load up our skin with chemicals. But clearly that can't be accurate. How should we best interact with the sun or, or what is a better way to think about our interaction with the sun? Well, again, let's take it out of the idea of thinking about it. Most people in today's world work indoors or work in buildings. Prior to 1900, over 90% of the population worked outdoors. Everyone got their minimal daily requirement of sunlight, which is the most powerful nutritional aspect of Mother Nature. Most of us, over 90%, work indoors. We're light deprived. And this is why every major disease today is significantly related to a vitamin D deficiency, because vitamin D is something we derive from interaction directly with sunlight. So let's talk about what you said. The healthiest people are the people that spend a great deal of time outdoors. Most of the significant skin cancers like melanoma occur in places that usually never get sunshine. And it's more prevalent in people working indoors under fluorescent lighting than it is with people that are spending time outdoors. The other thing is that even though melanoma has some relationship with burning your skin early in life, so it is somewhat related to sunlight, the people that spend a lot of time outdoors 
are eight times less likely, even if they get melanoma, to die from it than people that spend their life indoors. Because, you know, when you step outside your house or if you stood outside of an office building and you recorded the sounds that came from people the moment they stepped outside, you'd notice something. They all do this. Ah. Yeah. And the reason is because living indoors with conditioned air, totally unnatural light, sounds that are continually repeating themselves, computers and so on, is so unnatural that it produces a dramatic amount of disease. So in terms of your question, a person should have at least 30 minutes a day of natural light. Now, if you're someone that spends most of their time indoors, like most people, stand outside for one minute a day, the first day. Increase it to two minutes the next day. If you have a place where you can remove your clothing or at least clothing that covers large areas of the body, like your chest or back or your entire legs, if you can just lay out in the sun for a minute the first day with your shirt off, maybe your trousers off or shorts on, maybe a minute on your chest, a minute on your belly. Maybe the next day you increase it by a minute. What will happen is your skin will adjust to that light and actually develop melanin in your skin that will protect you from burning yourself. See if you can work that up to about 30 minutes a day. So for instance, I walk every day about three miles. If it's warm, and it usually is out in Maui where I live, I walk without a shirt on and I walk with shorts on. And so I'm getting that sun through my eyes and into my skin. And that is something that is more powerful than anything else a human being can do to support their health and wellness. Another aspect is not only are we told not to be out in the sun and to totally cover our skin with all kinds of sunscreen, but we're told to wear sunglasses all the time. There's nothing wrong with sunglasses if you're driving into the sun, if you're skiing, if you're out on the water, or if it's an exceptionally bright day. But most people who believe themselves to be sensitive to light, hypersensitive, have become that way because they're constantly covering their eyes from the sun with sunglasses. It's artificially self-created. It's very important to allow natural light to enter your eyes. It's what your eyes are married to. 98% of the light that enters the body enters via the eyes and every function of the body is regulated by light so when you limit or change the spectrum of light that comes into the eyes 
you're creating tremendous stress. Now we hear something today about the fact that computer screens give off an excessive amount of blue light. Blue light in the solar spectrum from the sun is not problematic because it's in total balance with the amount of red light that comes from the solar spectrum. So it works beautifully. But our technology, our computers, our cell phones, and so on, which are using light sources that primarily are on the blue end of the spectrum, what that does is it feeds our eyes more blue than is actually healthy. So if you have an iPhone, they have a program that can change the spectrum automatically of the light so you're not getting too much blue light at night. You can get those same applications for computers. They have very simple glasses that have a slight yellow or amber, slight orange tint. Some of them have no tint at all but are able to block the blue light. You can use those, especially in the evening or if you're spending an inordinate amount of time in front of a computer. My computer, for instance, my desk backs up to a large window, a four by eight foot window. So I'm continually getting natural light and looking outdoors so my eyes have a break because when your eyes are continually looking at something up close, what ends up happening is you usually become nearsighted because they adjust themselves to that distance. But if you can work on the computer and then look outside at infinity and continually allow that to just look off to the distance throughout the day, you can probably preserve your eyesight and still work at the computer. So a few helpful hints, all of which I mention in my newest book, and all of which take really no time, no energy, and don't require any cost. <laughs> right. Yeah. The book is just chock full of great advice and techniques for bettering your site or keeping it healthy. And of course, after 40 years, I'm sure it's a bit tiring to keep going over your own experience with site healing, but obviously this is still quite new to some people. I tried to give the cliff notes in the intro, but maybe you could elaborate on your own story or at least the decades of helping thousands of people to see better because I guess the trick to it or the underlying knowledge is that it's not so much about the ocular nerve as much as it is an alignment with the mind's eye and the ocular nerve. Is that right? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, I'll share with you that between 1967 in 1976, I wore glasses. I was nearsighted, and I had a significant amount of astigmatism, which many people have. Essentially, what that meant is that if I looked off into the distance, things were blurry. So I couldn't see the blackboard if I was in a class. I couldn't see well to drive when I was in my early years of practice, and I don't practice any longer in the field of optometry, you know, I couldn't see the letters in the distance to know whether my patients were giving me the right answers or not. 
So I had worn glasses up until 1976. And then I had a very profound experience while I was meditating. Today, if I tried to describe that experience, people would say, oh, that's an out-of-body experience. My eyes were closed. My glasses obviously were off. And I was just doing my daily meditation practice, which I had been doing since 1971. But something unusual occurred. All of a sudden, there was a sense that I was observing myself sitting in the room meditating. There was a feeling as if I was fully aware of everything in the room at the same time. I don't know how to describe it to you, but it was almost like I was fully aware of everything and everything was clear, not just optically clear, but clear in every way in that the mind was totally quiet. There were no questions about anything. Everything was clear. Again, I can't tell you what precipitated this state. There wasn't anything I was doing. All I can share with you is 20 minutes later, when I came out of my meditation, to my surprise, I was able to see everything with a level of clarity that I, quite frankly, did not remember for a very, very, very long period of time. I didn't know what to do. It was a Sunday. I got in my car. My license said I needed to wear my glasses to drive, but I could see so perfectly that I put my glasses on the seat next to me. I drove a half an hour to my office, noticing that I could see all the license plates, the street signs, and the billboards with no problem. I got to my office. I sat in my examination chair 20 feet away from my eye chart, which is very different than today. Hardly any eye doctors that you go to will actually allow you to read at 20 feet away, which is called optical infinity. Because rental space is expensive, they have you look into a mirror at a reflection that's behind you. And so you're not actually seeing in the same way as you would see outdoors. But in 73 and 76, my office was set up where everything was 20 feet away at optical infinity. Well, when I started projecting a variety of different eye charts, I was consistently seeing 300% better than I naturally normally saw without my glasses on. And I thought this was rather astounding, and I couldn't understand what was going on. So I decided to examine my own eyes, something that's not easy to do because I have an instrument in front of my face, and I'm playing with the knobs on the instrument, but I can't see what I'm doing. So you could say it was like a double-blind experiment I was just doing on myself. and so. I examined my eyes, and when I came to the prescription that looked optimal to me, that felt optimal, 
I came out from behind my instrument thinking that my prescription might be weaker or maybe the instrument would essentially show no prescription at all because I was trained to believe that as your eyes worsen, your ability to see, your visual acuity also diminishes. So if my visual acuity improved dramatically, logic would say to me, maybe my prescription has changed. Now, I was told that was impossible in my training, but that was the only thing I could imagine. When I came out behind my device and looked at the readings on the instrument, I was totally blown away because here I was seeing 300% better. But the prescription, the optical measurements of my eyes had not changed at all. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was like the only way this could occur is if we are not seeing from the eyes alone that there are other mechanisms involved in the process of seeing. And that led me to an experiment on myself the next four or five years, which I called an experiment on the workings of the mind. And what I was trying to figure out is, what is the relationship between what we call the mind's eye our point of view, our ideas, our beliefs, and so on, to our eyes? And is there a way that I can access a state of mind, shift something that can allow me to replicate this profound experience? Well, I couldn't find such a place, even with all of my searching. I should tell you, that it's been 42 years since that day in 1976. I'm over 71 years old right now, and I have never worn a pair of glasses to see a distance or for reading since that day. Hmm. And none of my eye doctors, and I see my eye doctors every year, can understand how it is that I have a significant prescription but I still see clearly. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to share with you is in response to your question. What is it that I discovered that I sense is related to what you're asking for? In other words, what is the source of our seeing? Mm -hmm. When we talk about me or I, who am I? Because if we can determine our essence, our essential self, that is the part that's actually seeing. So here we've been led to believe we see with our eyes. If our eyes are closed or there is no light, obviously we shouldn't be able to see based on that. But all of us go to sleep at night. There's no light outside. We close our eyes, and very frequently, almost nightly, we have dreams. Some are incredibly vivid. They are filled with light and color, and yet there is no light and color. They are filled with something that 
looks like life and certain abilities that are beyond anything we can imagine in life, like people have dreams of flying and so on, or being in different locations very quickly. So we know that the seeing mechanism is a lot more than the eyes. And then, of course, you would then come to the commonsensical idea that, well, it's the mind then. And of course, that would make sense because, you know, the mind is aware and awake and so on to certain degrees when you're sleeping. But if you look carefully, every human being has a very profound experience. So, for instance, you, like all of our listeners, like every human being, has this phenomenon that we call thinking or thoughts, which essentially means that we are aware of some mind chatter. Would you agree? I would, definitely. Okay, so when you are aware that there's chatter going on, who is it that is aware of that? Hmm, only myself, really. Right. Well, who is yourself? Because you say myself. So you're saying that myself is aware of this thing that we call my mind. Mm -hmm. Because the chatter is coming from what we call the ego or the conscious mind. And we've been led to believe that's us and that we are doing the thinking. But most of the time, what we call the thought arises by itself. We don't know from where it comes. And then we become aware of it. But we're so used to saying it's my mind that we believe that we're either thinking it or not thinking it. What I came to discover many years ago is that we are not the thinker of the thoughts. We are that which is aware of the thinking when it is occurring. The difference between the mind and this something that is aware of the mind thinking is that you always know when the thinking is going on because you're aware of talking, of a voice. The observer or this field of awareness that notices it never talks. It has no point of view. You see, the mind sees things as good or bad and right and wrong. I like it. I don't like it. It resides in what we call duality. Mm -hmm. This field of awareness, let's call it an observer, has no point of view. It doesn't speak. So if you hear a voice, it is not your essence. It is not yourself that you were speaking about. It is the mind. What is noticing that is our essence. And because that place sees from no point of view, it sees with absolute clarity. It is our point of view that causes us to see more of one thing and less of another. 
it reduces our ability to see clearly when there is no point of view everything is perfect just the way that it is hmm. so in terms of my sense of how my vision shifted it wasn't because i exercised my eyes or because i did any sort of mind games it is because i discovered who i was hmm. i discovered that i wasn't all that chatter you know in the psychology field there are famous experiments that were done on dogs where every time they gave the dog food they would ring a bell so the dogs were conditioned to associate the ringing of a bell with the food coming mhm mm after doing that for a while and these were called pavlov's dogs because pavlov was the person that did the experiment after a while pavlov stopped ringing food but just rung the bell every time he rung the bell all the dogs salivated mhm mm in other words they were conditioned to react a certain way even though there was no food every human being is conditioned the term they used to use for that years ago was brainwashing <laughs> yes so let's talk about one simple example of conditioning when an infant comes into the world an infant does not know it is an infant it has no sense of gender it has no sense of skin coloration it has no awareness of religious differences it doesn't come in liking chicken and disliking broccoli it has no preferences and this is why it was said that an infant lives in oceanic bliss because the infant is in a state of unconditionality the infant doesn't even know that it exists separate from the other person that we call its mother it has no sense of self as something separate from anything else it lives in unity now you know all infants when they have to urinate for instance they just urinate mm -hmm. into their diaper or they defecate if that's what's required but when an infant gets to a certain stage that time when we say oh they should be toilet trained when the child naturally urinates for instance or defecates the mother or father says oh no you can't do that you have to hold it until we get to the bathroom so then what happens is normal meets up with natural the infant is responding in a way that's natural but the world is saying what's natural is not normal what's normal is that you hold your bowel movement and so the infant all of a sudden receives the message that they need to monitor themselves continually 
to say the right thing, to do the right thing, so that they are acceptable. That monitoring system that is continually determining what the person should do to ensure safety, security, and predictability on a planet where safety, security, and predictability do not exist, that monitor is what you call the mind. That's what you call thinking. But thinking isn't really thinking. It's worrying. It's what we go through most of the time in hopes that we can guarantee that we will come through the situation okay, that we will get the job, get the raise, pass the test, be liked by the girl or boy, and so on. So one of the biggest issues that humanity has is we've all been conditioned to experience life through our ideas of what we were told was acceptable or not acceptable, rather than to see life directly. Mm. And the awakening that people speak about, the enlightening, is when one realizes that they are not the mind. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to do anything to change your belief or to quiet the mind. Once you begin to identify with your essence, then what occurs is over a while, the mind begins to quiet by itself and it sits off in the background most of the time. Hmm. Each of us have things that really trouble us. So we'll experience the mind and interacting with it many times in our life, but most of the time, it'll be in the background. Hmm. I mean, this is all so interesting. And I learned from your book, there is some real science that shows that we sense photons before they actually take shape and form. And we have a lot of processing in this regard that's going on before our conscious mind even realizes it. This is right in the nexus of what you're talking about. But it's interesting that there is so much science behind it. And it has huge implications for flow states as opposed to ego thinking, right? Yeah. A lot of the philosophy you hear today is about trying to make the unconscious conscious. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why almost everything that comes from us occurs at a level that we're totally unconscious of. And that is because we do not control any aspect of our physiology. You don't control when you go to the bathroom or not. You don't control when you wake up or you don't. You don't control your heart rate, your breathing rate, your secretions. You don't control anything inside the body. You also don't control anything in Mother Nature. And yet, we say to each other, well, I create my own reality by the choices I make. So I say to people, okay, how do you know that? It's not that we need to argue about it. That's of no value. But how do you know that? And if you don't know how you know that, but you heard it from some author or someone else, 
then I think it's important for each of us to begin to look at that. Is that true? You know, when we're trying to think about something, we often say, God, it's on the tip of my tongue. And it doesn't come off the tip of our tongue until we stop thinking. Hmm. And yet we've been led to believe that we have to think in order to get the answers. What I have discovered is that what we call thinking actually obstructs us from getting the answer. (laughs) The answer literally comes free of charge when the mind is still and quiet. So I think it's really important that all of us begin to have a direct experience of life. I always say to audiences when I'm speaking publicly, don't believe anything I say. If it resonates with you as, oh, yes, I know that, well, you're not believing me. You're just acknowledging your own experience. But rather than believing the person or disbelieving the person, trust your own guidance, whatever is true for each person. Mm. Do an experiment in your own life. Begin to see whether that's true. Is my thinking really creative? Because we were all told that thinking is what made us more evolved than animals and so on. But science knows today that animals think and so do plants. Consciousness exists everywhere. To the smallest microbe, a plant knows the difference between a drop of water touching its leaves and the pitter-patter of a small creature that's about to feast on it. And it develops stress hormones in response to it. So all these ideas that we are highly evolved because we can think or more evolved than other creatures, I think it's important for us to actually notice, is my thinking creative? Or does it just surface when I'm scared and I don't know what's coming up and I start feverishly to try to orchestrate things in my mind and rehearsing them internally in hopes I get it right. Mm. Yes. And what I am sharing with the listener is the most exciting thing in life is to live life without a net, (laughs) to actually go into life empty-handed. So for instance, I've been blessed to be asked to speak in front of audiences more than 2,000 times as an adult. Since 1977, I have not prepared anything for any talk I've done. (laughs) I have no notes. I've never used the PowerPoint. I do not give it any thought whatsoever. It all occurs by itself, just like this conversation today. And you and I have never spoken before. That's true. And now we're in the depths of something beautiful that seems to have a life of its own. It's flowing by itself. And none of us have given it much of a thought. 
wouldn't it be interesting if we could live our lives that way? <laughs> it would. It would. And I like everything you're saying. I wanted to bring this up because it kind of speaks to your point about control. But to step back to that first quote where you say light guides us, that it directs us, you write about a little game that you played that I thought people might find interesting, but you say, I began a round-the-clock practice of anything that entered my awareness, I was responsible for. Anything that was my responsibility, I would attend to. And anything I attended to, I would complete. I did this practice for a week and did not let anything buy me. By Sunday, I was picking cigarette butts up off the street. <laughs> and I really like that because how often do we see dishes in the sink or any number of things that we ignore and then they nag at us? And maybe we should take your approach of instant action. Maybe light is like a universal parent dangling keys ahead of our toddler head saying, hey, look over here. You know, you need to pay attention to this. And I, I just think the whole idea is pretty, pretty cool. Well, listen, we know for a fact that the eye does not on its own initiate action. There is no part of our physiology that is designed to begin, to initiate the action. Our entire physiology works as a response mechanism. What is it responding to? It's responding to a stimulus. What is the most fundamental stimulus there is? Light. It's the vibration from which everything emerges. So literally, literally now, what's catching our eye is catching our eye purposely guided by the intelligence of life to move us in the direction we need to go. This is why a plant follows the light that impinges upon it. So when something catches our eye, be it the bed needs making or there's a dish in the sink, or a text to return, or an email, or a phone call, or a bill to be paid, the timing of that occurrence is coming from the same intelligence that regulates the rising and setting of the sun, the movement of planets, the change in the tides and seasons. In other words, this is not occurring by accident. This is occurring at the precise instance of time. When you realize this, it's not about us needing to take action. When the light catches the eye, the eye reflexively and effortlessly moves towards it. The body then turns towards it without any effort, and we naturally begin to respond to it effortlessly. The work that makes us fatigued is the work that we engage in when we say, I'll do it later. Mm. I'll prioritize it. I'll take care of it tomorrow. So much of our stress is because the mind says, ah, do it later. When I feel love for my partner, Every time I feel it, I share it. It doesn't make a difference when it is. And it could come at any moment, you know. And what I'm sharing 
with you and our listeners today is that life is continually guiding us. The plant doesn't have to think about which way to grow, how much to grow, when to grow, when not to grow. Something is guiding it. Animals move the same way. You know, I live in Maui. Every year, thousands of whales migrate from Alaska to Maui. They make a 10,000-mile journey, no compasses, no iPhones with navigational systems, yet they travel primarily in straight lines, and regardless of environmental conditions and currents, their route from year to year doesn't vary even one degree. What is it that's guiding them? What is it that's guiding migratory birds that make thousands of mile journeys without leaders and without followers? That's what's guiding us. And I'm not talking about spiritual woo-woo right now. I'm talking about hard science. I'm talking about real hard science. So. Science and spirituality are both looking for the same thing. One looks through a microscope and a telescope, and the other one looks through direct experience. But they're both searching for something similar. Hmm. The truth that ultimately can set us free. (laughs) Well said, well said. Wow, man, this has all been just so insightful, a real pleasure Thanks for taking the time with me. I mean, we mentioned Luminous Life, the latest book. We mentioned Light, Medicine of the Future. You also have Take Off Your Glasses and See. That's a great title right there. Anything else to remind people about your work or website before we uh, really let you go? Sure. I have a fourth book called Wisdom from an Empty Mind. Hmm. And we don't sell books on my website. We don't really hardly sell anything. Those things are available through Amazon. The website is jacoblieberman.org, O-R-G. And Lieberman is spelled L-I, B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N. Or people can follow me on Facebook. But I think they'd find the website beautiful. It's an aesthetically beautiful website. I designed it that way because I'm not interested in selling stuff. I'm interested in sharing whatever wisdom I've acquired that hopefully can help humanity. And I think people will find it informative. There are a lot of little short videos that take three minutes or little audio pieces of interviews that I've done or interesting things, interviews that were written and so on that people may find fascinating. Google has thousands of them or YouTube. And on our Facebook page, what's nice is all we do is share things that we think are valuable for people. And so it becomes a a nice place to visit and to see a nice quote or a nice new piece of research about something that people are interested in. So people can contact us again through jacoblieberman.org. And most of all, I've I'm so grateful that you took the time to reach out and that we had this opportunity to share a couple of hours together. Mm, Too kind. Yes, I definitely enjoyed it. Definitely learned a lot. I'm sure the people would agree. 
You're a true advocate of light and sight. Thanks so much for your time. Dr. Lieberman, keep doing what you do and take care out there. All right. And you as well have a marvelous day and a marvelous 2019. You as well. Cheers. Cheers. And let there be light, dear people. Dr. Jacob Lieberman, a titan in his field. He has been to the mountaintop. I kid, but I really was happy with this because when you fold it in with Shaman Janir and the hollow fractal perspective, I think it's right there. And honestly, this wasn't really supposed to be so synergistic with those episodes. It just kind of happened in a sort of classic sync fashion because I'd already set out to find this guest specifically for light therapy. And there are some good options out there. But I had heard Anadi Martel on Rune Soup, and I thought, well, let me look around because I don't want to poach another guest from Gordon. It's a big world out there, and it's rude. Plus, Anadi has a fairly thick accent, which is a small thing. But I also factored in that when Gordon asked him about conspiratorial angles and medical suppression and how much more widely known this information used to be before Rockefeller Medicine, Even though it's in his book, it didn't seem to be his favorite line of questioning. And I understand, like, let's get past it and just get to the science and the application and the positive stuff. But when I got Anadi's book, not only is Dr. Lieberman's book, Light, Medicine of the Future, featured prominently in the light therapy history portion, Dr. Lieberman actually wrote the foreword to the book overall. So I followed that thread thought, hey, let's check this guy out. And I saw a few Dr. Lieberman presentations and was just sold that he would be a great guest. He had a miraculous healing event while meditating. That's something pretty interesting to a higher side crowd, I would think. But he's also this huge living legend in the world of light therapy. And his newest book, Luminous Life, is more about the big picture, the philosophy and worldview behind it all. I mean, it's right on the cover, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living. And I thought, yes, let's fold this in. And I'm sure after 30 years, having written that book so long ago, it's probably a lot more exciting to talk about these big picture ideas. One could argue it's even more important. Though I was glad we were still able to fit in some time for the down-to-earth applications, because I still think they're pretty unknown in the wider culture. And that was what I initially set out to do anyway. But when I was preparing for the actual interview, it was just like, well, we can do that later too. Let's get into this big picture stuff. And I don't know how I would have felt about all this material maybe even five years ago. I might have thought it was a bit cheesy. But now I think it's some of the most important stuff to be hearing about, to be thinking about. And I really love that idea that light is directing us intelligently. Dr. Lieberman would say, it's not an idea, it's the reality. I understand. He has a real knowing, and it shows. So I guess I mean that I like that acknowledgement that light is directing us intelligently. I mean, now we have the false light of the digital takeover, the dead, pale glow of the abyss, and we cannot look away. No, but it is like that signal from the sun, from the photons of Indra's net, perhaps. It's blocked because of this false light and our obsession with it. 
It isn't good for us, but we just can't stop. Do not follow that false light. See, now I'm getting into preacher talk, but it is interesting, right? I mean, that language and just the reality we're in, the situation, the culture, this point in the timeline, I think this stuff is important. And that approach to life that if something enters your attention field, then it's a call to action and you should take care of it. I've been trying to incorporate that a bit because I do have a tendency to put things off and then I can't even enjoy the time that I'm trying to use to relax because I keep thinking about how I have to get up and do that thing. It's dumb. (laughs) So to me, just that it's something that you could take away from here and see real life improvements right now or tomorrow morning. I mean, brace yourself, you know, give yourself some time to mentally prepare for this radical new life change. But you could incorporate it and see those real-life improvements. Treat it like a game. If you even look at that kettlebell, well, you got to pick it up and swing it around a couple times now. If you see that trash is full, it's got to go out. Just do what's in front of you. And when you spot those golden arches, you got to get a burger every time. That's just the rule now. But I got to thank Dr. Lieberman for recording this with me over two different days. That would be why we might have retreaded a little bit of the same ground in the second hour, because it was recorded, I think, three days later. Regardless, it was very cool for him to give me that extra time, and I feel really good about putting this one out there overall. I hope it's inspiring. Check out his books and website. He's got audio and video for sale on there, too as well as that spectral receptivity system, and tell him you liked it if you did. Of course, as I mentioned, we do have a second hour, as always. It's sort of the thing around here. It's how you double the entertainment and educational value of what this show can be, and it's why tens of thousands of people hear a free show that's still commercial-free, except for this kind of thing right here. But in the second hour today, we talked about a little thing called light therapy suppression and the history there. Light, colors, and the effects on our physiology, that spectral receptivity system, the element of fire, how sunlight affects us differently at different points in the day, tons of great, powerful stuff that we really should have been taught a long time ago. I am curious about trying to use some of those infrared healing techniques to possibly restore my hearing, even if not the deafness from when I was a little kid. But if we could just restore the damage I did at punk rock shows in high school, I wouldn't be mad. No rush, but I do think it is part of this overall THC journey. I don't talk about it a lot, but it is like the last domino that maybe needs to fall. I've been able to explain strange experiences in my past, given context to my psychedelic journeys, escaped the nine-to-five cog-in-the-wheel societal trap that I was just so consumed and obsessed by, and become much more knowledgeable in a whole host of subjects and have more than justified my internal outrage at authority. So I've reeled a lot of things back. And although I don't think I'm going to restore the foreskin situation, the last real lasting damage from the system would be this hearing issue. And not necessarily that it was system caused, but if there is a healing technique out there that has been suppressed from me, 
in that regard, I can blame the system. So, you know, something just tells me that that might have happened for a reason and might not be as permanent as I've believed for 30 years. We shall see. Still seems very unlikely, but my whole life has become pretty unlikely. But I do love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope the care and attention that I'm trying to put into each episode shows that I obviously do not take you guys or your time for granted. And I guess I'm getting out of here. Your move, you lovely, lovely little light beans soaking up your sunshine. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 